You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. This is our last time to meet for uh, the coronavirus time. And so it looks like mom and dad are having some trouble still. (laughs) So we'll see how this goes. Um, A few people have talked about not having ID numbers as well. So perhaps, Chris, if you can identify how to fix some of that, we can take care of some of those issues and all that good stuff. But it looks like we're having some technical difficulties in Charlotte. So thank you guys for hanging in there with us. We Um, got it. The Song of Songs experience. And um, Larry will be taking us through that. So we'll see how it goes. Um, Keep praying and keep your fingers crossed. And I hope everybody's having a good day. Uh, and going to have a safe holiday weekend as well. So, Dad, I'm going to turn it over to you. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) All right. It's all yours. Okay. Sorry, we had a little delay here. We're going to see a different kind of good news in this particular message than we've encountered in the previous messages. This good news is going to be easier to recognize as good news than the news about the value of inevitable boredom that comes in living a pointless existence in the Ecclesiastes experience. That didn't sound like all that kind of good news. And after realizing that the Job experience of suffering just might be required in order to see God clearly enough to recognize and repent of our spirit of entitlement, I think we're for some more easily recognized good news in Song of Songs, because it's going to to deliver some obviously really good news. This book, the Song of Songs, that's our topic for tonight, this book paints a picture of the one-of-a-kind relationship that we human beings as Christians can enjoy with Jesus, a relationship that somehow develops as we embrace and move through boredom and suffering. Now, the Song of Songs introduces us to nothing short of a miraculous possibility. And I've really gotten excited as I've been thinking about this. We Christians can have a relationship with Christ that is so meaningful. Now, see if this makes sense to you. We can have a relationship with Christ that is so meaningful and satisfying, even when computers don't work very well, that it overwhelms pointless boredom with passionate purpose. And not only that, but our relationship with Jesus that is so full of the power of love, of divine love, it's available that we can transform our experience of suffering into an opportunity to draw even closer to the heart of God. And that's good news only if drawing closer to God is what we most want as we live in this troubled, disappointing world. So as we look into Solomon's love song, I really hope that we can feel the warmth of its message, but I'm immature enough to grumpily wonder why it's necessary to endure both Ecclesiastes and Job in order to enjoy their relationship with Jesus that I was created to experience. Why the boredom? Why the suffering? It seems to me, shouldn't morning devotions and regular church attendance be enough, along with personal Bible study and small group fellowship and a moral and generous lifestyle and the frequent practice of spiritual disciplines, shouldn't that be enough to get us into the depths of our relationship with Christ? Those are good things to do. Of course, I'm commending them, but maybe there's more required. Maybe some Ecclesiastes experiences are required and some Job experiences are required in order to enter as fully as possible into the relationship we have with Christ. 
Now, there are times, I'm sure you've experienced this, I certainly do, that it can seem that agreeing with the messages of Ecclesiastes and Job seems to get in the way of the joy of walking through life with Jesus. And I need to confess this, that my last few weeks of constantly thinking about Ecclesiastes and Job has, in some way that I'm not very happy about, blurred my appreciation of God's goodness. If God is both good and powerful, and we all believe that he is, then why must I so often struggle with emptiness and pain? Now, there's some other reading that I've been doing these last couple of weeks has put me further off track from gladly trusting God to always be doing be good, even when I'm bored out of my mind and suffering deeply. I've been reading two historical novels about the Nazis during World War II that graphically describes the atrocities that Hitler's people were bringing to the Jews. And I really lost hours of early morning sleep these past several weeks, thinking about Ecclesiastes and Job and then the Nazis and putting them all together. And I felt very plagued by some very challenging questions that I wasn't happy to be asking and some ugly thoughts directed toward God. Now, here's a sample, just trying to recover a little of what I was thinking many, many mornings these past couple of weeks. Something like this I've been saying to God. God, I know that you can't stand the sight of evil. You can't stand the sight of innocent people's anguish. Now, I know when your prophet Habakkuk said something similar, God, you can't stand the sight of evil. Habakkuk then asked, well, then why, God, do you idly look at evil? And why do you remain silent when people are suffering? Why then and now, I found myself asking early mornings the past few weeks, do you seem so absent while so many people, Christians included, are struggling and suffering? And God, you did let Job suffer for apparently a long time, was not a day or two or three, maybe weeks, months, who knows, years. And to realize how you dealt with Job for so long, you let him suffer, 37 chapters recorded suffering. It makes me wonder, as I think about it, God, on my Christian journey with Jesus, it makes me wonder, what can I count on you to do when boredom drains my energy? And that's not an uncommon experience for me. And when suffering can being very can be very hard to bear, what can I count on you to do when I'm going through Ecclesiastes and Job? Well, those questions and thoughts were stirred by my study of Ecclesiastes and Job and given impetus by the two novels that I've mentioned. And are those disrespectful questions and unseemly thoughts part of the pathway into the joys of the Song of Songs experience? My answer is yes. Now, let me get into it. Last Saturday evening, I completed my look into Ecclesiastes and Job, at least for the series. I'll be reading them again, I'm sure, as the years continue. But as I completed, as I completed these, these two books, as far as thinking them through, I felt a, a very strange, surprising sense of hope. Sunday morning, after I spoke last Saturday night, after another bout of putting God's goodness into question, I rose, ate breakfast, and I read Solomon's song slowly, all eight chapters. Now, I've read the book many times before, but I never prepared myself for reading the Song of Songs by reflecting seriously and deeply on Ecclesiastes and Job. But now that I've done that, last Sunday morning, when I began to read the Song of Songs, something strange happened. I actually felt invited into a beautiful world of connection with Christ that I had not so clearly thought of before as the home of my soul.
Ecclesiastes and Job, you see what Song of Songs is really all about? Well, now that I'm seeing that Ecclesiastes emptiness and felt very deeply and obviously hated, it stirred a longing to press on when I'm exhausted by unsatisfied desire. And Job's suffering seemed to sharpen my awareness as I was reading Song of Solomon's that more hard times lie ahead for me, but I felt a gentle, almost exciting desperation that brought into focus an outcome of suffering, including repentance of an entitled spirit that really would make the suffering worth it. I think the spirit was scraping away whatever would hinder me to knowing Christ better as I got into Song of Songs. Let me put it this way. Ecclesiastes and Job have awakened an inescapable but subduable thirst to know Christ that was leaving me with an acute expectancy as I read the Song of Songs. As I thought about that, that expectancy, I realized this. With desire for God comes discernment of the Spirit. And as a result, I really had some hope in reading the Song of Songs, maybe in a new way. I was ready to read the book of songs, the Song of Songs, as never before. And as I've spent the most of the past seven days swimming in the Song of Songs, what's been happening, either I'm seeing what I've never seen before in this book, and that's possible. The Bible always reveals new things to you. Or, maybe both, I'm experiencing relational possibilities between Christ and me that had not moved me, and has now been moving me in my study of the Psalms. So I'm now quite convinced that Ecclesiastes and Job have provided a spirit-led pathway into the book that I now want to look into. Two preliminary items as we begin. Solomon wrote, did you know this? Solomon wrote 1,005 poems. You can read that in 1 Kings 4, verse 32. Now, it's a good bet out of those 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote. I think it's a reasonable bet, a good bet that the Spirit selected the very best one to be included in the Bible. And that's what we have before us in the Song of Songs. And hearing that music of this particular song that Solomon wrote, the very best one that he wrote, has to be similar to looking at the very finest painting that Rembrandt, Rembrandt ever, ever painted. And looking at the beauty of Rembrandt, at the beauty of Song of Songs, that's what we need to be anticipating. And that's one thing I want you to notice, the best of the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote. But here's a second thing I want you to note. Many Bible scholars today, actually starting in the beginning of the 20th century, fairly recently, they really changed their view of Song of Psalms from being an allegory of the Christ Church relationship. And many scholars, good, solid biblical evangelical scholars, now believe that Song of Songs is really um, a, a vision that God is giving us as to what marital love could actually mean, his gift of man-woman relationship and the holy bond of covenantal marriage. And that's what the Song of Songs is really all about. But I have a but here. But since the Spirit loves nothing more than displaying the beauty of the Son <clears throat> in both the Old and the New Testaments, in the Song of Songs, I believe it's fair to see a vision of what's possible in our relationship with Christ. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. I believe the Song of Songs is an allegory. Now, those two items in mind, the best song that Solomon wrote and the Song of Songs can be properly read as a picture of the Christ Church relationship, I want you to consider with me what God might be saying to us in Solomon's best love song. It's a story. Let me just repeat what you're all familiar with. It's a story. It's a love story of a young shepherd man and an ordinary, hard-looking woman 
who had to work in the fields. Her brothers made her work in the vin- their vineyards and gave her kind of a dark tan and a rough skin. So there's an ordinary, hardworking young lady with a young shepherd. And they were moving through the ups and downs of a loving relationship that ends well. Now, the woman in the Song of Songs and the story of this relationship, she gets the last word. Listen to the last word that she says about her relationship with her, with her lover. She says this in chapter 8, the final chapter, verse 14. She says this, come away, my love. Another translation, make haste, my love. What she's expressing at the end of this love story is she wants to be with her man. She wants to reach the summit of relational marital pleasure. She also not only gets the first, gets the last word, but she also gets the first word. The Song of Songs begins with her talking, and here's what she begins by saying. In the very first chapter, she says, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. That's verse two in chapter one. And as I read those, and not just getting caught up in the fact that she's a young lady who loves her husband and wants to be kissed a lot. That's all there. I don't doubt that that's real in this particular woman's experience. But the Spirit intends it, I believe, for us to realize that those same similar words, at least, maybe a little different wording, could come from someone who sees Jesus as the life most, as providing the life most longed for. Someone who would say, somebody who knows who Jesus is and what is the life that he provides, someone would say, maybe you, maybe me, we could say, Jesus, come come close to me. I, I want to feel your love. I don't want to just know about your love. I want kisses. I want to feel your love in my soul. I want to feel your love in the relationship that you've given me that we now have together. I want to experience your love. And then the song goes on to describe three opportunities that the lover gave to the beloved in order to experience something of the reality of real relational love. In verse four, here's how the verse reads, and I'm quoting from the NLT typically, I steal from the ESV now and then. NLT in verse four, it says this, chapter one, the king has brought me into his bedroom. Well, the rather obvious place for felt intimacy in a relationship of satisfying love, a relationship that she's saying is now beginning. I'm actually going to be in the bedroom. I'm in the bedroom. I haven't consummated the marriage yet, but I'm in the place where, where deep relational intimacy is possible. That's the first opportunity that we're told that the king, referred to as the king, the, the, the lover, gives to, gives to his beloved. And then in verse 12, the second opportunity, we read, the king is lying on his couch. Now, if you're familiar with the way things were in ancient days, a couch was really a dining room uh, chair. It was the people would lie down on a couch and recline as they would eat at the table. So this is basically inviting the woman to a table that he's provided where he's saying, I'm going to give you the sustenance that you saw you need for our relationship to continue. That's what I want to give you, woman that I love. And it's hard to resist thinking of the table that he's talking about. Come near to me on the couch, the couch next to the table. It's hard to resist the temptation to think of the Lord's table. Uh, a picture of the Lord's table where Christians feed their souls with bread and wine, with the symbols of the Lord's crucified body and his shed blood. Is that part of what's involved in that particular passage? And the third opportunity is chapter 2 and verse 4. He escorts me to the banquet hall. 
Now, again, the banquet hall is the place in Old Testament culture where people got together and enjoyed glasses of wine. It was the house of wine where friends gathered to drink wine that makes them glad. So three relationships, the three opportunities for intimate relationship are underway. One, intimacy, that's the bedroom. Christ is in me and I'm in him. Secondly, sustenance. Christ's sacrificed life feeds me at his table. And then gladness. Christ's love delights me, the image of wine that gladdens the soul. But the woman is rather self-conscious in the middle of all these opportunities for intimacy. In chapter verse 5, chapter 1 and verse 5, she says, a rather strange phrase when you look at it quickly, I am dark but beautiful. I'm dark but beautiful. Well, she then explains what I mentioned earlier, that her brothers were treating her rather badly, and they required their sister to work in the vineyards under the hot sun, which darkened her, gave her a tan beyond what she wanted, and roughed up her skin, made it give her a weathered look. And, and she was saying, when I, when I think about my lover, I believe he's going to see beneath the outward appearance, and he's going to see my beauty. I'm beautiful in the eyes of my lover in his bedroom, at his table, while drinking his wine. In those situations, she hears her lover speaking, and now the lover speaks for the first time. And, she's, and he says this, Oh, most beautiful woman, how beautiful you are. That's chapter 1, verses 8 and 15. In other words, or in those words, rather, I, I hear my identity as the bride of Christ established. I'm Christ's desired companion. He really wants to be me, be with me only by grace, only by grace, one by his death and resurrection, only by grace can he look at me with all of my failures, all of my weaknesses and say, Larry, you're beautiful. You're everything I want. I want you to be with me. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that we're God's masterpiece, at least his masterpiece in the making. So everything is good in their relationship. Off to a great start here. Marriage is going great. No, the relationship is going great. Until something goes wrong. Chapter 2 and verse 8. In that verse, we read that the woman is not with the man. Apparently, some distance has developed. But the woman is listening, wanting to hear if her lover is going to be speak. Is he, is he talking? Does he want me? Will he pursue me? And then she says in chapter 2 and verse 8, I hear my lover coming. Now, where is he? Well, he's standing behind the wall of the room where she is in. All this is in the text, chapter 2. And while he's standing behind the wall, he, quote, looks through the window, unquote. And then lastly, it says, quote, he's peering into the room. In other words, a picture of Jesus just eager to see us in a way that draws us to him, eager to catch a glimpse of the one that loves her. So can you see it in that? Can you see their Christ-church relationship? Christ actually misses us more than we miss him when we're distant for whatever reason, when we've moved away from him. He misses us. We might miss him, but not like he misses us. But, but why the difference? And here's where things get a little more interesting for me. The lover speaks, chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, and the woman hears him say this, Rise up, my darling. Obviously, he's still talking to a woman he regards as beautiful. But look at the phrase he says then. Rise up, my darling. Look, the winter is past. What's being said in that? Now, just interpret uh, in light of the Christ-Church relationship. 
we follow Christ. It's spring. Things are going well. We feel intimate with him. He's blessing us. We're enjoying our, our, our Christianity, enjoying our Christian walk with Christ. The weather's fine. Nothing distracts us. We're with Jesus. And then winter sets in. Life becomes difficult. And when life becomes difficult, what obviously happens rather easily is managing our circumstances into a better place assumes more importance than delighting Christ with our presence. I got all the bills to pay. I got to go to the doctor. I got to take care of this. I got to take care of that. I got problems with my kids. I got a problem with my friends. Things are going wrong in my life. I got all. I got to deal with all this. And now I'm back in my smaller story, determined to manage it well and have more interest in managing my smaller story well than joining the larger story of being in the presence of Christ. And as this woman is in that situation, the lover speaks to her and he says this, my dove, he's referring to the woman again, all kinds of imagery in here. My love is hiding behind the rocks. Let me see your face. And then very interestingly, he says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes before they ruin the vineyard of love. That's a quote. Catch all the foxes, the little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I see those, fix, those foxes as personal difficulties in our existence, in the story of our life. We all have them. Maybe little ones that you don't even recognize as winning your priority attention, but things that are going wrong, things that you're not having to, that you're having to manage, but aren't knowing how to manage. And what do I do with this? What do I do with that? I got a kid that's not doing well. How do I relate to him? How do I relate to her? I got a friend. We're kind of on the outs. We're not very close to each other. We got to rebuild my friendship. And that gets all of our attention. And those are the foxes. And and the, the, the leper is saying, I, I want you to catch those foxes. I want you to see that they're in your mind, and I want you to catch them and throw them away because I want you to come back to me. I long to see you. The woman was freezing. This is what I see in that chapter. He was freezing, in the verse rather. The woman was freezing in a winter of trouble that cooled her affections. But as she was in this winter of trouble, she heard her lover's voice say, Rise up, my darling. The winter is past. In the next verse, the flowers are springing up. And when I read that, my mind went, as perhaps yours has quickly gone, to the children in Narnia. As they exclaim very happily, I see leaves on the trees. The winter brought on by the white witch is ending. And the woman responds, my lover is mine and I am his. Return to me, my love. That's what I want the most. I've got to deal with my problems. I got a life I have to attend to. I got to go out and put gas in my car before the trip I'm going to take. I got to go to the doctors because I have a bad headache. I got to see what's going on. I got to do all that. But in the middle of that, I want to draw closer to you. And that's my priority. Return to me, my love. So he does. Everything's now really good. All is well. Or maybe not. The Christian's journey continues through ups and downs until Jesus returns. Here are the next down in the story. Chapter 3, verse 1, the woman speaks. Listen to her words. One night, as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he didn't come. I think I know a little of what she might mean in my experience, and I'm sure you do as well. There are times I just yearn for the presence of Christ. I yearn to know he's with me in the middle of life struggles. I yearn 
to know he's with me when I'm scared. I yearn to know he's with me just because I want to be with him. I want to be close to him. He's wonderful. He's, he's my lover. I want to know his love. I want to taste his love. And I yearn for him, but he, 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 he didn't come. That's what the woman said. And, and my question as I read that is, well, why? Why doesn't Christ always respond to our strong expressions of desire for his presence? Does Christ not come when we desire him? Or do we notice that the woman stayed in bed, yearning but not seeking? She stayed in bed. She didn't seek him. She yearned for him. Get the difference. She was yearning him, but she wasn't seeking. And I wonder if Christ sometimes leaves us alone in the absence of seeking. Of course, we're told, if you seek me with all your heart, I'll be found by you, a verse in Jeremiah that I think I quoted last week. But also in Hosea 7, verses 13 and 14, God was speaking about the people he loved. And he says, I'd long to redeem these people. I want to be with these people. I love these people. But they wail upon their beds. Is that what this woman was doing? Yearning, but staying in bed, not moving? We sometimes yearn for God to make himself known to us. But, but remain more interested in staying comfortable and not going to the trouble of actually seeking him. Can I, can I, can I deal with that in some way? Let me get my notes organized here. Yeah, can I, can I change? Can I pray without ceasing? And can I change that? to seeking without ceasing. I can pray all I want, but prayer has got to have some legs to it. There's got to be some seeking of the Lord. Her continued search, and she did get out of bed. When he didn't come, she said, I'm going to go find him. She finally got out of bed. And her continued search, I would suggest, reveals her wholeheartedness, and eventually she found him. And when she found him, what does she do? What do we do when we really find the Lord, when we get very close to him and just experience his presence? Well, the Bible says about this lady in Song of Songs that she held him tightly, chapter 3 and verse 4. She held him tightly. And of course, when she was holding him tightly after staying in bed for a long time, yearning for him, and then finally getting out of bed and running after him, and now he's there and she holds him tightly, what, is, what does the lover say? Well, pretty obviously, your lover would rebuke her. Well, why didn't you search for me right away when you realized how much you desired me? And no doubt he told the clinging woman to back off. Give me time to warm up to you. I'm not all that thrilled with you right now because you didn't seem to really be interested in searching for me, just kind of complaining that I wasn't coming to you when you were wanting me. Well, that's not what happened, as you know. She held tightly, and as she held tightly, we're told that he said to her, you're beautiful, beyond words, chapter 4 and verse 6. And then he goes on, your love delights me, you have captured my heart, verses 9 and 10. Can you hear the Spirit telling us that Christ finds joy in being wanted by us? He wept when Jerusalem wouldn't come to him. And C.S. Lewis, in one of his many memorable sentences, said, we can be an ingredient in the divine happiness by not only yearning for him, but seeking him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And again, when she does this, when she gets out of bed and she seeks him and the, he shows up and she holds him and he says, you're beautiful and everything's wonderful, things are good, the relationship is good, it's very good. But, there's another but. The journey continues to go in and out, up and down. Chapter 4 continues 
with a lengthy, extravagant depiction of the lover's enjoyment of the beloved's beauty. Well, that's really good. Chapter five begins with a lover telling his beloved that he's waiting for her in his garden. And now she's back in bed. I slept, we read, if she's talking now, the woman's talking, I slept, but my heart was awake. I knew what was going on in me, but I was in bed and I was quite comfortable and it was warm and cozy and I was enjoying my, my blankets over my body and the comfortable pillow. But I knew that I was awake and I knew that something was happening in my heart. And as she was awake in her heart and lying in bed and sleeping, she heard her lover knocking. I think she's just sensing what she, what she was experiencing as he was asleep but still awake in her heart. She heard her lover knocking on her door and calling to her. And the words we have in the song are these, open to me, the lover saying, open to me, my treasure, a picture of Jesus longing for our company. This is the song of songs. I remember one time when I read that in preparing, preparing for this talk, I, my mind went to a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, when um, I went to my, my pastor after a, after a sermon that I was very moved by. And I, I said to her, I said, you know, uh, I'm not in a good place. I'm in a dark place. And I, I've shared that. I've been in dark places, of course, as you have. And I've sometimes told a good friend, in this case, a good friend who happened to be my pastor. I said, I'm in a dark place now. And so often when you say that to a good friend, they come back with good things to say. I'm so sorry you're there. I'll pray for you. But this, this pastor, this good friend of mine, rather than saying that, her words really struck me. She said, Larry, the Lord just loves your company when you're in a dark place. He knows what it is to be in a dark place as he looks at this world. He loves your company where you are. But the woman didn't respond to her lover's longing to be with her by saying, uh, but the woman did respond to her lover um, by saying things that weren't the best. What she said was, you recall these rather striking words, I want you to come to me, my beloved. And she responds, well, I've already taken off my robe. Am I supposed to get dressed again? And I take, I washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? Now, those are her exact words. I gave a little bit extra phrasing there. The actual verse reads like this. I've taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? Before in bed, the earlier example, she was living in the winter of life's trials, focused more on her practical challenges in her smaller story than on her yearning to be with her lover in the story he's telling. And now again, we find her in bed and she's focused on her comfort, not wanting to be inconvenienced by her relationship with God. I don't want my relationship with Jesus to take me away from the conveniences that I really enjoy, that I really like. Following Christ, have you noticed, can sometimes be rather inconvenient. Look at the Apostle Paul. I'm comfortable. I mean, his whole life just indicates that it wasn't what you call an abundant life of blessings, an abundant life of comfort. But his lack of comfort didn't keep him from still staying on track with God. And the woman is saying, I'm comfortable in my nightwear. My feet are clean. Maybe I'll just stay here because I don't want to give up my comfort. And then what does her lover do? He tries to unlatch the door. Other translations indicate that his hand appeared through the door. Chapter 5 and verse 4. 
And when she saw the intensity of her lover's desire to be with her, the woman's, and this is a quote, the woman's, quote, heart thrilled within her. Chapter 5 and verse 4. She opened the door. And when she opened the door, he was gone again. Jesus, why are you so unpredictable? I thought you're never going to leave me nor forsake me, and I believe that, but I never sense your presence, and I want to. She, 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 she had a heart that was thrilled within her, and she opened the door. She wanted to be with her lover, but he was gone. Why? Think about that. She got up. She got dressed. She got her feet all messed up with dust, I suppose. She did the right thing. But what did the lover's absence do? If you read on in the text, the lover's absent, absence made her aware of his attractiveness to her. The absence deepened her thirst to be with the one that she found profoundly attractive. We have something similar in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 15, where the prophet tells us, you're a God who hides himself. And now the woman searches for him again. Now she's getting all into the, the movement, the seeking. She searches for him again. And we read that she's reciting to, to herself and to others all that is beautiful in her lover. As she gets out of bed now, when she sees his hand coming into the latch and gets up and opens the door and he's not there, she says, oh, but he's the one I want the most. Let me tell you, everybody that I know, let me tell you what it's like to be with him. Let me tell you what, who he is and why I want him so badly. Chapter 5 and verse 10, just one example from several. My lover is better than 10,000 others. Verse 16 He's desirable in every way. Is that how I talk about Jesus? What does he have to do to get me to be aware of that thirst for him? Sometimes when I really am aware of how much I want him, he doesn't show up. And then I realize I really want to be with Jesus. He's everything. Even when God feels far away, can we agree that he's actually loving us by stirring up our thirst with, a, with, a, with the thirst that only he can satisfy? Well, once again... As always, his passion, her passionate search leads her to find him. And again, just like Jesus, when the lover sees his beloved, there's no rebukes. There's no sense of, well, you took your time, sweetheart. That's not at all the way he, the Lord speaks. Um, he didn't say, well, you wouldn't even get out of bed to be with me. I thought I was worth more to you than that. I thought I was, I was your deepest desire. Rather, what he does yet again is he extols her beauty. And he tells her his her impact on him. This is a little bit new in, in previous times of extolling her beauty. He says in chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5, you are beautiful. That's not new. But then for the first time, he says, turn your eyes away for they overpower me. When you ask yourself, what's the point of what I'm doing to advance God's kingdom? Well, maybe it's helpful to remember how deep is the Lord's joy in seeing the price that we're willing to pay to serve the one we love. Now, more than half of chapter 7, after all that, records, yet again, the lover's celebration, his intoxication with his beloved's beauty, a whole long part of the chapter. And just let that sink in. That is Christ's attitude, his view of me. There's been so many times when I have failed him so miserably, and all I can picture from him is a rebuke. You've heard many people say in the past, can you picture Christ's smile when you're really ugly? when you've been behaved in a deplorable way. He doesn't like your sin. He hates your sin. But he hates your sin because he loves you so much. 
And when there's repentance in your part, thanks to the suffering of Job, when there's repentance in your part, all I can say is you're beautiful. Um, and realizing that my, that mind-blowing truth, that in my worst moments, I, I am, I'm actually knowing his love in the presence of my, 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 my wickedness, my sinfulness. The woman completes chapter 7, telling of her eagerness to give herself fully to her lover. She speaks of a level of new delight when she says, I have saved delights for you, my lover. The last verse in chapter 7. I want to delight you, and I've saved my delights in order to give you everything that I have that's delightful. I want you to enjoy. The message of Solomon's song, of Solomon's song, I think is becoming a little bit clearer. Let me tell you what I think it is, if I can just summarize it. A whole lot more than I can say, but there's an unrealized potential in my relationship with Jesus. There's an unrealized potential in your relationship with Jesus. There's a joy that's available, a solidness, a security that's available, which no tragedy, no heartache, and no fear can destroy. The woman speaks again. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. Will I get out of my bed? Will I seek the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? You know, I can tell you that I've known something about the problem with staying away from Jesus when I'm living in winter because he's not helping the way I want him to. What am I to do at that point? Recognize what's going on, that I'm really moving away from him, that I'm really prioritizing my life going well and prioritizing being with him. I also have no trouble relating to the idea that there's so many times I want my life to be a comfortable, pleasant experience and getting closer to God the process of getting closer to my Lord sometimes requires a loss of comfort, which sometimes I really have very little interest in. But notice the lover's last words to his beloved, chapter 8, verse 13. Oh, my darling, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. You're talking about me to others. I want to hear your voice. I want to be delighted with you. You have the power to delight me. Don't you want to delight me after all I've done for you? I love you so much. And she speaks to close the song in verse 14. And it's a wonderful ending. I've already quoted it, but now we're at the end of the song. Come away, my lover. Make haste. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And we who live with a passionate desire to be with Jesus, hear Jesus share his last word to us in the 66 love letters. What's the last thing he says, do you recall? His very last words that are recorded in scripture from Jesus to us, I'm coming soon. And the last words that the beloved, me, you, once we hear the whole message of love and the whole 66 love letters of God, our response, come soon, Lord Jesus. We're to expect, I want to suggest to you as I finish up now, we're to expect more Ecclesiastes experiences of futility, boredom, and felt emptiness, and more Job experiences must be endured. We're going to wonder why God isn't providing the relief, the healing we desire. But it's then, when we move into Ecclesiastes and Job, it's then we learn what it really means to live by faith. Faith, the reality of what we hope for, but aren't fully experiencing now, but tastes. 
I want to be in the bedroom where there's going to be kisses. I want to be um, at his banqueting table. Um, I want to be at, 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 on his, at, at his couch where by, by the table where he feeds me with food that strengthens my soul. I want to be in the house of wine where I can find gladness. I want all those tastes now. Faith, the reality of what we hope for. Heaven, nearness to Christ. Faith, the evidence of things not seen. The larger story is unfolding. Faith leads us into another Song of Songs experience, a journey with Christ, ups and downs, passion and apathy, intimacy and distance, rich encouragement along with seasons of deep discouragement, everything awakening our thirst to be with him. Now, by faith, until we're with him in the eternal climax of a story of perfect love. You know, as I was just rethinking before we got on here with a little computer glitch, grateful that we got that dealt with by our experts, certainly not me. Um, I just was thinking again that um, over this past week, Song of Songs has hit me really in a very new way. I've said that before. I want to say it one more time. It hit me in a new way. I, I've been in a bit of a dark spot. I've been in a season of just feeling like I've just not been close to the Lord and I've been moving in ways that I know don't honor him the way I want to honor him. And when I began reading the Song of Songs and I spent time in it and rehearsing my thinking about it and seeing the Lord's love for me in the middle of this ancient song, the best of Solomon's songs, something stirred in me. And I had been lying on my couch in my sunroom reading through the songs. And when I when I got the sense of his love for me, I was so eager to get up, grab my Bible, and just ponder it again and get to work on this message because it really has meant a lot to me. That's my study of the book of Ecclesiastes with that experience, of the book of Job with that experience, both experiences which can lead us into a deeper experience of the Song of Songs. Thanks for listening. Dad, thank you so much. And I'm so grateful that the computer glitch that we had this afternoon worked out. <laughs> I'm glad that it all came together. Grateful as well. Thanks for doing this for us, Dad. Um, and thank you guys for joining us um, for these last eight weeks of uh, virus quarantining time. Um, we're uh, this this concludes our our quarantine time. We're going to try to convince Larry to do some more of this, and we'll certainly let you guys know. Um, one thing that we do offer, though, is we've got another webinar that's going to be happening Tuesday evening. Um, and uh, that will actually be on spiritual direction. Dad will be interviewing some spiritual directors and talking to them about what that looks like and what that means. So we'd love for you to join us uh, with that. Uh, go to largerstory.com backslash webinars and register for those. And that's four o'clock in the afternoon. Four o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday next week. Um, and we just thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for, uh, for being a part of this, this little uh, two-month session. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.